Tonight, we're continuing Fact or Fiction, right? And, and we've started this series out by looking at what? We looked at the subject of worldviews, right? And we looked at all the different isms that exist out there. We looked at naturalism. We looked at, at pantheism. We looked at postmodernism. We looked at spiritualism. We looked at all those things. And we looked at Christian theism, which is what we would say is what our preferred worldview is. If, if you're out there and you say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, that's where you would land. But in order to figure that out, we had to answer the question, which one of these is true? And then we had to go to the next week where we looked at what is truth. And we said the truth is that which corresponds with reality, right? And then we went from there to say, okay, so now we need to know what the nature of reality is. And we determined that reality actually is, is not something that has always existed. This, this universe, creation, has not just always been, but that it all had what? A beginning. It all had a beginning. And a beginning has to have a cause. And so we move from there to look at the uncaused first cause. And we uh, or I held out to you that I, I believe that that uncaused first cause is God, that I think it's an intelligent designer with personality, with, uh, with intellect, uh, with uh, an appreciation for things like beauty, um, for, for precision. And we looked at that all by just looking at, at scientific evidences that, that exist out there, even the law of irreducible complexity, that there's things like the bacterial flagellum, right? With that little rotor, that tail that's on it, that spins at 10,000 RPM, which is faster than any of the sports cars that are at least street legal out there. Their, their tires will even go and they can stop. That thing can stop within a quarter turn and go the opposite direction immediately, just as fast. I mean, there's, there's evidence that's just mounting out there in support of the idea that this world, this universe, that reality was created by an intelligent designer and that designer is God. And now we've been looking the last few weeks at that concept that that designer is the God of the Bible, we looked first at the uniqueness of the Bible. We talked about all the, the different authors that there are, that there's 40 different authors at least in the Bible, that it covers a, a time span that's just enormous when you think about how long it took, 1,500 years to, to complete the, the scope of the Old Testament and the New Testament, how many different geographical regions are represented there. And then we, we posed the question, I posed the question there at the end and said, if you just took 40 people today and spread them out in the United States and gave them not 1,500 years, but just 15 years to write one book. And they weren't going to collaborate together. But then when they came back together, that each of their volumes would come together and have one grand theme, one grand story, one grand thread or meta-narrative meta connecting the whole thing. What are the chances that that would happen? And, and we would all say that the chances are pretty much nil, zero. And yet that's exactly what we find with the Bible, but to an, an infinitely greater degree. And then last week, Pastor Mark came in and he walked us through some things on the canon, on these 66 books that make up the Bible. And how do we land on that? And we're going to cover a little bit more about that this, this evening together. But the big question before us tonight is, is this question of, okay, so I've got this thing that's, that's got this leather cover on it with some weird palm trees and coconuts on the front of it. Um, is it. Is it reliable? Is it reliable? Can I trust that this, what's in this book is what God wanted to be in this book. Not just are these the 66 books that God wanted in here, that's the question of, of canonicity, right? But beyond that, I mean, can we trust that this is what the actual authors had in mind when they sat down to write these 66 books? In other words, when I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is this what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the human authors that God divinely used to write those words, is, is the content in there still the same content that they wanted me to understand nearly 2,000 years ago when they wrote. That's what we're looking at tonight. 
It's that question, right? Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. I assume a lot of you have sung that before or grown up singing that. Jesus loves me. This I know why. For the Bible tells me so. But I wonder if we've ever really thought much about that. And some of you probably have. Others of you have grown up in Christian homes and you've never really taken the time to step back and say, can we really be confident in that? Can we really trust? Can we really rely on this book that so many in the world will tell us is not worth our time and not worth our trust and not worth our confidence? Some of you in the room tonight might be right there and saying, you know what? I, I'm that person. I don't think it's worth our confidence. I don't think it's worth our trust. And I, I hope to, tonight to, to prime the pump and, and to get you thinking and to get you considering the, the weight of the evidence that stacks up behind the reliability of the Bible. It's, it's pretty overwhelming. It's pretty staggering when you consider it. And we're not even going to scratch the surface of talking about some of the, the people, the men who have died in order to, to avoid denying the scripture and, uh, and jump and ship from the word of God. If, if you ever get a chance, look up the Marian martyrs. M-A-R-I-A-N, Marian martyrs, comes from the, the name of, of Queen Mary, who was also affectionately known as Bloody Mary. Uh, but there's a, a book from J.C. Ryle called Light from Old Times. And in that, he walks through brief sketches of these men, the Marian martyrs, who died. They were burned at the stake because they believed the word of God was reliable. They believed the word of God was true. They believed that it was worth our confidence and our trust. And so these men were strapped to the stake alive. Some of them even it went so far with the Catholic Church to, to strap gunpowder around their chest. And you know what happens when gunpowder and fire meet. And yet these men were given opportunities, even as the fires were lit, to recant, to say, okay, fine, it's not worth it. I'll, I'll deny the scriptures. And they didn't. They went to their death for it. And so we're going to look at why they had such confidence. Why can we have such confidence? Well, I mentioned last week, Pastor Mark looked at this concept of the canon. But I want to go over it a little bit more. What is the canon? Well, canon is another word for standard, right? And it's specifically the, the 66 books in our Bibles. It's the official list of the 66 books in our Bible. How many are in the Old Testament again? 37. Not 37. 39. In the New Testament? 27, right? Simple math would, would add up 27 and 39 and, and give us 66. So that's what the canon is in general. It's this standard of the, the official list of the, the books of the Bible. But a question, was the canon decided on by a church council in the 300s? In other words, did a church council, specifically the Council of Nicaea in 323 AD, is that what gave these books their authority? And we would say, and what Pastor Mark, Mark walked us through last week is, is no, right? That these books were already considered authoritative. In fact, consider some of the, the evidence that we have to that. Origen. Origen was a church father who listed all 27 books of our New Testament in 250 AD. Okay, that's 70 years prior to the Council of Nicaea. And so he has a, a list where he's putting them all out and saying that, the, hey, these are authoritative books. That's 70 years prior. Let's go even earlier than that. Here's a guy, Polycarp. Polycarp was a, a disciple of John, the apostle, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. He, in AD 70 to 156, during his ministry there, quotes to or alludes to 10 out of the 27 New Testament books in his letters. He references as authoritative, as scripture, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Colossians, 
1 Timothy, Hebrews, 1 Peter, 1 and 2 John, as well as in the Old Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, and Isaiah. Then you have another one, Clement of Alexandria, lived 8150 to 212, quoted scripture 2,400 times and referenced all but three of the New Testament books as scripture in his writings. And then finally, you've got a guy named Tertullian. 160 to 220 quotes the New Testament more than 7,000 times in his writings as scripture. The gospels alone over 3,000 times. And so why do I throw these men out there, these church fathers with funny names that are hard to say? It's, it's because I want to show you that it's not a council in 323 that decided that these are the authoritative books. It, it wasn't a bunch of, of men rubbing their hands together in a smoke-filled room that were like, ah, let's mess up the world and create a Bible. That's, that's not what they were doing. They were simply saying, you know what, we're going to create a a standard. We're going to set something out there so that people know what the the official list of books are. We're not going to give these books any more authority than they already have, but we're going to simply recognize that these are the authoritative books. It goes this way. Consider the the, the idea of, of leadership, right? You have two different categories of leaders, that you'll encounter, and, and some of you will be one of these two different categories of leaders. You can be the leader who needs the title, okay? You can be that person that needs somebody to say, hey, I want you to come and do this for me. And you're waiting for the title. You're waiting for the ask. You're waiting for somebody to, to say, you're a leader, and, and to knight you as that leadership position. But then on the other side, there's the leaders who are already leading without the title, and then they're given a title, Does that title make them any more of a leader than they already were? No. They were already doing it. They're just simply now doing it under an official title. That's what we have with the the canon. The New Testament books, this this title of the canon of, of Scripture, it didn't give them any more authority. It simply recognized what they already were. They were already authoritative. And they said, so you know what? We're going to just recognize this. I mean, if you guys are out there and you guys are leading and I'm seeing you guys take the lead as, as students in third nine, I'm going to look at you and go, okay, I'm going to lean into that person and, and maybe invite them into leadership positions. Why? Because I already see you doing it. You don't need to be recognized in order to become a leader. You're already leading. But as we consider on, can continue on, uh, we had to, to ask, what, what were they looking for? Um, what was the, the big deal about the canon? They were looking for uh, things that were written either by apostles or prophets. These are some of the, the, le- the, the characteristics of the things that the church considered to be authoritative. Why the church said, yeah, this is a letter that's worth passing around, written by an apostle or a prophet. The other thing that they were looking for is authors that were validated by miracles. You guys remember in the book of Acts, you see a lot of miracles still in the book of Acts, don't you? Have you ever wondered why we don't see that many miracles today? What was, what was going on in the book of Acts? When, when the apostles went out there, did they have their, their pocket New Testament handy to pull out and start preaching from? No, they didn't. Thanks, Joseph. They didn't, right? In fact, they had the Old Testament, but the Old Testament at that time were scrolls and things, and they were cumbersome, and they, they couldn't really carry them around. And they were coming around saying, hey, look, the, all the prophecies in the Old Testament that were talking about somebody called the Messiah, he's here, and his name is Jesus but they were going out into a, a watching world that was going, okay, yeah, but, but prove that. And so the, the miracles that they were doing were validating their message, were validating their authority. So if, if you see a guy today that's like, hey, come to my church because I'm going to heal somebody, that guy's a, a fraud. There's no way around it, okay? 
He's, he's just straight out a fraud. That's not how it works anymore. Why? Because our authority as heralds of the word of God, as preachers, is not an ability to raise somebody from the dead or heal the sick or heal the lame. It's in this book right here. For God said, period, end of story. In fact, if you go to the book of James, what's interesting is at the end of the book of James, this has nothing to do with our subject. This is just for free and I'm passionate about it tonight. So here, if you go to the end of the book of James, James actually says to them, if anyone is among you, if anyone who is among you is sick, and then he says this, let him call for the elders to come and pray for him. If healing was something that was supposed to be normative in every church community, why wouldn't James have told those that were sick, hey, contact your local miracle worker to come and lay hands on you and raise you and heal you. Anyways, New Testament times, some of the things that they were looking for is what the authoritative writings were is, were the authors validated by miracles? You think of John, you think of Peter, you think of, of the apostles in, in the book of Acts, and you saw some of those things. What else were they looking for? They were looking for content that agreed with known truth about God. If there was a letter that was put forward, there was something that was put forward by a church, and they said, hey, we think this is pretty good, but then it, it contradicted the rest of what they believed about God from other things that, that they held to be canonical. The Old Testament, for instance, they would say, no, we're going to reject this. This isn't right. But if it did agree, then they would say, okay, this is worth consideration. Next, content that had a sanctifying impact on people. Was this transformative? Did this have a, a, an impact on people? Was the Spirit, in, in other words, using this in the lives of people? This was a little bit more of an intangible in the standards there. And then finally, was it generally accepted as authoritative by the people of, of God, by the church? Was this in wide circulation? So as the Council of Nicaea met, they were looking at, at these things. Again, they were seeing things that already met these. They didn't make them meet these. These were letters that were already out there that were meeting these standards. And this group of men said, hey, we're going to create an official list. But why would an official list have been necessary? A couple reasons. Number one, it was necessary to protect against false teachers so that the church could begin to have a, a standard. Again, that's what that, that word canon means. So that when somebody traveled through town and claimed to be a, a messenger from God, they could hold that teaching up against something and say, does this fit within the context of God's word, what we understand to be scripture? And if it didn't, they could reject it. They could lay it aside. Second, they wanted to protect, protect against false prophets in their writings. There were men that were writing letters and writing scripture that are things that they wanted to be passed off as scripture and, and sending it out to the churches. And now there was something to, to compare and contrast those against so that they could say, no, that's, that's not part of God's word. That's not part of the canon. That's outside. But here's another one. It helped with the spread of the gospel. As the gospel was going out and reaching further and further and further as a, a result of the church taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, they needed to know, okay, what was the, the portions of God's word that they needed to bring with them and translate into other languages and, and spread amongst other people groups. And having a canon helped them know, here's a specific group of, of books that we need to bring and we need to make sure are, are put into circulation. And then it also finally gave clarity in persecution for the church to know, okay, yes, this is something that's worth dying for or, you know what, this is something that I can kind of let go because it's, it's a minor issue. So it gave clarity in, in persecution. So that's a, just a, a little bit more on the canon, that, that it wasn't a bunch of men just meeting and saying, hey, look, here's 66 books, and we kind of like the name of them, so we'll throw them in, in the circle. It was men saying, these are already authoritative, already recognized in the church, and so let's, let's put together an official list. But when we think of the books of the Bible, do we have the original documents anymore? 
what's known as, as the autographs, those that were written by Peter, John, Paul, James, so forth and so on. Do we have any of those anymore? East-West on that one. No. No, we don't. We don't. What we do have is an abundance of manuscripts, okay? And, and that's what we have that, that we look at to compare and contrast and come up with the translations that we have today. But, but come with me for a second on, a, on an illustration. I, I brought this up a couple weeks ago. You remember the illustration of the teacher in the classroom? So if, if you walked into class and you sat down there and your teacher said to you, okay, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to read a paragraph and I want all of you to write down the paragraph that I read to you after I finish reading it word for word, okay? She stands up, she reads it, takes her two minutes. And then she says, okay, go for it. So everybody in class writes down this paragraph that she wrote. Would there be mistakes in those paragraphs that, that were copied down? Yes, guaranteed. But if you took all of the, the papers in the class, say there were 25, if you took all 25 and you put them down and you compared them with one another, would there be enough similarity to kind of get the gist of what the teacher was saying when she read that paragraph? Yeah, there would. You would see some differences there and there would be glaring differences, but you would get the general tenor of what was said, the subject at least of what was said by looking at, so to speak, these manuscripts, not necessarily the original, but the manuscripts. In fact, there would be some parts that were so word for word that you could be pretty sure that this is absolutely what the teacher said, even if you weren't in that room. Maybe the first couple of words, everybody in the class wrote those down because they heard them come out of her mouth, or the last couple of words, everybody in the class wrote them down because they were the last ones out of her mouth. You'd be able to see some of the detail. Now, let's take that idea of listening to it read, and now let's say your teacher came in and put it up on the PowerPoint, up on a slide and said, I want everybody in the class to copy down this paragraph in the next five minutes. Would there still be some errors in that if you took 25 of them? Yeah, probably. There would be some errors. Would they be less than just ha having heard it and then trying to write it down? Yes, they would be less. If you're looking at it and you're able to read it and copy it off of the slide, there would be less. And now, though, think about then copying, comparing all of the, the 25 different copies of it as a class you'd be able to see where the errors were, wouldn't you? Even more finely detailed than, than you would with just having her read it up front. And you'd be able to see, oh, okay, this person missed a comma there, but the other 24 wrote the comma. So most likely this person just made a mistake. Does that make sense? But let's say for some reason you're looking at all 25 and it, the, it's up on the screen and all of a sudden you come down and there's five of them that are missing the final word when the other 20 have the final word. You might look at that and say, okay, well, what happened to those five? You start to do a little bit of research. You realize that they were sitting in a particular area of the classroom where they couldn't see the final word because it was obstructed from view. And then you look at everybody else in the class and you realize that they had better seats. They could see the final words. So you can conclude that the final word should be in the actual original document that was up on the screen. Does that make sense? That's the process of comparing manuscripts. That's that's basically how the, the process of transmission, how we got the Bible from the originals all the way to us, took place on a much more detailed level. But they had the writings, okay? They had the, the actuals at one point, the autographs at one point. And again, because of the, the witness of the Spirit and because they, they considered them authoritative and the other things that we talked about, they began preserving those things right away, copying them down, writing them down. Writing was well on the scene by the time of Moses, who wrote down the, for us the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. It was in existence. Yes, it was an oral culture at that time with storytelling, but there was writing and there were ways to record truths at that time. 
And so that's what took place. And so here's some examples, by the way, if you're wondering, okay, so how much detail did they give to this? Was this just a bunch of guys kind of copying it down on the fly? Here's some rules for the Jewish scribes who used to make copies of the manuscripts. First, only parchments made from clean animals were allowed. Parchment was a, a, basically a very, very thin animal skin. Had been scraped clean. It was used to write on. It was more durable than papyrus, which is the worst font on the face of the planet and also not a, a durable material. Um, but they would, use, they would use parchment if they wanted it to last longer. So they could only use parchment from clean animals according to the Old Testament law. And they could only be joined together to make a scroll with clean sinews, which are the, the tendons from clean animals. Again, also from the Old Testament law. Okay, so there's a rule, rule number one. Rule number two, each column of the scroll was to have between 48 and 60 lines of only 30 letters each line. 48 to 60 lines as, is the only number that you could have in one column. And every line on there had to have 30 letters. The ink had to be black in color and had to be prepared by a special recipe. Nothing, not even a single letter could be written from memory. Let me repeat that one. They were not allowed to write down a single letter from memory, but had to go letter by letter what was in the text to what they were copying down. The letters in the manuscript were to be separated by the breadth of a single hair and the words of that by a single letter. So you see the, the amount of detail that is going into this. I mean, the, the letters by a single hair and the words by a single letter. The scribe had to wash beforehand and be in full Jewish dress before beginning to copy the scroll. And then here's this one. The name of God, Yahweh, could not be written with a freshly dipped brush and... The scribe could not be interrupted by anyone or anything while writing this name. So somebody comes in and says, hey, the, the building that you're writing this in is on fire. He can't be interrupted. He's writing the name of God. Somebody comes in and says, your wife just got killed. He can't be interrupted. He's writing the name of God. That's how specific and detailed and focused and, and how much honor and dignity they showed to what they were doing. Why would they do that? because they understood the gravity of what they were doing. One of the rabbinic scribes was quoted as saying this, my son, be careful because your work is the work of heaven. Should you omit, leave out even one letter or add even one letter, the whole world would be destroyed. Now, did they actually believe the whole world would be destroyed? No, but they were using hyperbole to communicate that this is a very significantly important, bless you, task at hand. One of the commentators said this about this. He, he says, at the time when the communities, and this guy's not a commentator. Sorry, let me back this up because it impacts this. He's a, a professor of Hebrew at Notre Dame. Okay, so he's not exactly what we, could, we would call a conservative evangelical theologian. All right, not by any shot at all. At the time when the communities associated with the scrolls were active, copying down the manuscripts of the Bible he's talking about, the books known today as the components of the Hebrew Bible or the Protestant Old Testament, our 39 books, were already old. So he's talking about around 650 BC, 
okay? He's talking about the time of Ezra, Nehemiah. He's talking about the time of exile, the time when the, the scribes first came on the scene. And this practice of copying these manuscripts really took off. But he's saying at that time, those 39 books, they were already old. They had already been around. They were already accepted. Because he keeps going here and he says this, despite their age or perhaps partly because of it, many of these books were thought by the writers to have extraordinary value for present concerns a value so remarkable that they were believed to be authoritative in the contemporary situation, a fundamental assumption that bears repeating and whose importance, he says, can hardly be overemphasized. So what's he saying? He's saying the reason they gave so much attention in detail to this was because they believed they were translating the word of God. They believed that it was authoritative and they wanted to make sure that they did not mess around with it, that they nailed it word for word, letter for letter as they were copying them down. Let's talk for uh, just a, a few minutes now about the manuscripts though because that's what this all boils down to. Let's talk numbers for a second. You guys are familiar with Plato, right? You guys heard of Plato's dialogues? Anybody know how many manuscript copies that we have that we're working off as far as ancient manuscripts go? Here you go, seven. Anybody have any teachers or, or professors that want to challenge the authenticity of Plato? No, I, I, I haven't heard anybody challenge the authenticity of Plato either. Okay, let's go on. How about Caesar's Gaelic Wars? This is the, the account from Julius Caesar of his conquest of Gaul, okay? How many copies do we have of that? Ten. Homer, did you guys have to read the Iliad, the Odyssey? Did you guys have to read the Iliad in school? All right, the Iliad's on a little bit more sure footing here. We've got 643 copies of the Iliad as far as ancient manuscripts go. Now, these are, are fragments, copies. Some of these are full. Some of these are, are partial. But we've got 643 of the Iliad. So, okay, we're, we're dealing with, with some decent ground there. Do you know what our numbers are from the New Testament? 5,800 and growing. 5,800 and growing Greek manuscripts. Let me classify that. 5,800 and increasing Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Think about that. Plato's Dialogues has seven, and it's taught as though there's no question at all this is exactly what Plato wanted when he wrote this down. The New Testament has 5,800 plus manuscripts. And it is one of the most critiqued, cast aside, attacked documents that exist today, if not the most. The Old Testament, 10,000 plus fragments, manuscripts, scrolls, 10,000 plus. Here's a, a graphic, guys. If, if I'll send this PowerPoint out to you guys this week so that you don't have to worry about trying to figure all that out. But, but this is just a, a layout of the number of biblical manuscripts, the different languages that we have, the totals that we have, the, the earliest ones from those particular those languages that we have that are on file currently with us. I mean, the, the numbers are astounding. Here's a different way to, to uh, depict it for you. Again, I'll, I'll send all this out to you. But these are the manuscripts if you stack them. So there's um, four feet tall. So average classical writer. So if you're short in the room, if you lived back in the day, you were, you were tall, all right? You were doing all right for yourself. You were at least average, but four feet. 
So the One World Trade Center in New York is 1,792 feet tall. If you took all of the manuscripts from the New Testament that we have, and fragments that we have, and stacked them, it would be a mile in height. One mile in height. Old Testament, one and a half miles. Bible, two and a half miles tall of manuscripts that we have. How about age? By the way, there's uh, on the left an example of papyrus for you that's basically just reeds that were taken from the, the Nile or from the rivers, and they were stripped and they were woven together to, in, in a crosshatch pattern. And then there's an example of parchment there, which I'm pretty sure is a desktop background somewhere as well. No lie, I'm pretty sure I just downloaded somebody's desktop background. And, but that's what that is, it's parchment. The fragments that we're talking about are these right here. In fact, the one on the left is the oldest one that we have to date that it has, uh, that's, that's from the New Testament. It's called P52 is how they classify it. Uh, and it is from about 130 AD. 130 AD. Guys, that's within decades of when the, the, the gospels were completed. It's crazy. It's crazy the amount of evidence that we have. But again, let's, let's talk age for a second since we just looked at, at those. Plato's Dialogues, written 400 BC. The earliest known manuscript that we have to date is 900 AD. That's a difference of how many years? Somebody do the math there. Not 500, 1300. 1300. The BC and AD tripped you up there. I see what happened. 1,300 years, you got to go down 400 years to get to zero and then up 900 years. So that's 1,300 years between the earliest manuscript that we have or fragment of Plato that we have and Plato's original writing. But does anybody question Plato? No, of course not. Next one, Caesar's Gaelic Wars was written, not in 10, that's left over from uh, a mistake, written in 60 BC, earliest manuscripts that we have, 900 AD. Again, that's, that's almost a thousand years between the, the writing and the earliest manuscript fragments that we have from Caesar's Gaelic Wars. And yet it's taught, it's verified, it's history, and people believe it without question. Uh, Homer's Iliad, okay? We're, what happened to my Homer's Iliad? Um, wait for it. This is fun. How are you guys? By the way, this is totally my error and not anybody's error in the back. I just want to, uh, and I'm being genuine in that. I'm not being sarcastic. Written in 900 BC, and earliest manuscript we have is 400 BC. So Homer's doing a little bit better. He had more manuscripts, and they're earlier, okay? So they're separated there, Cody, by how many times this time? 500 years. You were just ahead. You, were, you knew where I was going with Homer. You were just jumping. Yeah, so Homer is only 500 years, so that's doing all right. Um, let's, though, get to the, the New Testament again. It was completed, the entirety of it, all of it, all 27 books, no later than AD 100, okay? The earliest manuscript evidence that we have of everything, okay? This is an, a manuscript that contains pretty much all of the New Testament, dates to 200 AD. How many years separates the New Testament from completion to when we have the first manuscript copies going out? About 100, right? But the earliest fragment evidence that we have dates back to 130 AD, we're within decades. We're within a, a place where some of the original writers were just recently passing away. I mean, this is a, a amazing when you consider it. The Old Testament. The Old Testament. The earliest manuscripts that we have in our possession is 650 BC. Again, that's right around the time of, of the scribal 
explosion with, with Ezra. Um, but then we've also got the, the Dead Sea Scrolls from 250 BC, which contain references to 38 of 39 of the Old Testament books or full versions of, of 38 to 39 of the Old Testament books within the fragments there. So all that to say, we, we've got, when we consider the age of the Old Testament, when we consider the age of, of the manuscripts that we have, we have an astounding number of manuscripts. 5,800 plus New Testament manuscripts. More than Plato, more than Homer, more than Caesar, more... I, I mean, it's It's astounding. Beyond just the Greek manuscripts, I mentioned the, the Greek ones. We have 3,000 copies of Armenian manuscripts, 900 plus of Coptic, which is Egyptian, 300 plus of Gothic, 600 plus of Ethiopian, 10,000 plus of Latin New Testament manuscripts, 350 plus of Syriac, 80 plus of Gregorian, 4,000 plus of Slavic, 15 to 20,000 estimated total or New Testament manuscripts when you consider all of the different languages that we have to be able to lay out and compare and contrast. One author said to be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books. In other words, to be skeptical of this is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity for no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. In other words, n nobody can hold a candle as far as the manuscript evidence to what we have with the Bible. You are holding, you have believed in a book that is more well attested than any other writing, any other writing that has ever existed from classical antiquity on. But here's the question for you. All of these manuscripts, these 15 to 20,000 New Testament manuscripts, these 10,000 plus Old Testament manuscripts, do they all match each other word for word? East, West. No, they don't. They don't. But here's the, the encouraging thing. None of those changes, none of those differences, and we'll talk about those differences in a minute, impact the meaning of the text. In other words, none of them pertain to a major doctrine or a fundamental belief of Christianity. It's not like in one of them it was like, oh, Jesus cussed. That, that New Testament manuscript doesn't exist, right? It's not like in the Old Testament, you've got one where Moses, I, I don't know, I, I, whatever, drowned in the Dead Sea because the, he didn't have enough faith and it collapsed back on, in on them. I mean, th these things don't exist. It's, it's minor differences that we're talking about. In fact, the, the New Testament, I mentioned, how many manuscripts do we have in the New Testament? We have 58,000 or 5,800 plus, right? Not 58,000, 5,800 plus, 5,800 we have approximately 20,000 lines of text in those documents, okay? 20,000 lines of Greek New Testament text in those 5,800 documents that we have. Only 40 of those lines contain any portions up for debate. Somebody with a, a phone, take 40, divide by 20,000, and tell me what the percent is. by 20,000 is, is the total, right? And then convert that to a percent. So 0 0.002, what is that as a percent? Come on, you math majors. 0.2%. Did you hear that? 5,800 manuscripts, 20,000 lines, only 40 of those, not are in total disagreement, contain a portion of disagreement, which is 0.2% 
of our New Testament Greek documents. That's amazing. That is amazing. The amount of confidence that you can have in your Bibles, in your New Testaments, that yes, it is what the original authors intended when they wrote it, comes down to a difference of 0.2%. And again, not on foundational doctrinal issues at all. And so you might say, well, yeah, but, but there's still a, a big gap. For instance, in the Old Testament, 650 BC to you know, 1400 or, or to 1200 when, when Moses first wrote the Pentateuch, that's a big gap. Again, this guy from Notre Dame, he says this. Yes, he says, while that gap is a fact, it is also a fact that the student of the Old Testament is, comparatively speaking, in a rather advantageous position. For example, he says, the text of Plato's works, apart from some fragmentary second to third century papyri, is based on 51 manuscripts copied in the ninth century and later. So again, we're dealing with an an overwhelmingly huge number of manuscripts in the New Testament and in the Old Testament that we have to work with. So is there a gap? Yes, there's a gap. But there's an enormous amount of manuscripts that are out there. But I mentioned there's some errors. What kind of errors were there? Well, first, there were errors that were unintentional. Some of those include mistaken letters. So as the scribes were copying down, they didn't have LEDs and, and magnifying glasses and everything else, right? So they were going based on their eyesight. They sometimes looked at a Hebrew letter and, and saw it as a, a different letter than what it actually was. And so when they went to copy it down, they copied it down as a different letter. Guess what? When we're comparing all the manuscripts, do you think we can figure that one out? Yeah. When you're looking at it and you're seeing that word copied down by, by a, a large group of people as, as one way, and then you see this one strain as, as a different way, you go, okay, that, that's a, a corrupted copy that got corrupted somewhere along the line and, and just spread all the way down. Mistaken letters. Sometimes it was similar sounding words, just like in English. We have there and there. Have any of you guys, as you're writing something, written, written the wrong version of there down? I think everybody has, right? That's like the number one grammar Nazi thing on, on Facebook. You mean there? with the possibly Y-R-E or whatever. Um, Love you guys. Um, Or it's and it's, right? It's like, that's the wrong use of, I don't care. Um, But yeah, so words that sound the same, they could have been written down in the mind and and translated the wrong way. Again, you can tell that. You can compare the manuscripts and see those. How about just tired eyes? As the scribes were copying for hours on end, sometimes a, a letter or a word was missed or a scribe's eyes just jumped over it. Sometimes what would happen, y'all, is the, the 30, 30 uh, l- characters per line, one line would end with one word and then there would be another line right under it. But the next line down began with the same word that line ended with. And the scribe's eyes went from the word that he just wrote and just naturally picked up on that next word and, and left out a line of text. So it's, it's again, a, a, just a, a simple mistake. Tired eyes and you leave something out, you can see that. And then also you can also see when a scribe sometimes would double a letter on accident or double a word as he was recording. Those are unintentional errors. Sometimes there were, believe it or not, intentional errors. Intentional errors. Now, these weren't you know, wicked people, evil people that hate God and, and wanted to pervert the Bible. What these were, some people would update spelling and grammar. There were grammar police back then too. Um, they would update things that were, was language that was outdated or to, to help somebody understand a word better. The, a scribe might update something in a manuscript. Again, you, you can see that when you go back and compare the 10,000 plus Old Testament manuscripts, the 5,800 plus New Testament manuscripts. Sometimes they were going for, for harmonization. In other words, here's an example of that. Modifying a passage to bring it more in line with a parallel passage. Genesis 14, 14. It says that Abraham pursued Lot's captors as far as Dan. 
Okay, there's only one small problem with that. At the time that Genesis 14, 14 was written, Dan wasn't actually a place. So what we see there is later, a, a, a scribe copying the manuscripts grabbed that idea, that area, which was at that time then known as Dan and gave it the name Dan so that it would match up. Do you see how, how, what they're doing there? Again, they're not out to like pervert us and, and make us believe things about God that we shouldn't believe. They're just trying to help make things more understandable. So you can see some of those things. Uh, sometimes they were going to, to remove some offense. Uh, for instance, in 2 Samuel twelve nine, it says, Why have you despised the Lord? But some of the scribes wishing not to, to cause offense uh, in the Masoretic text changed it to, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? You see how they soften the blow there for David? That's Nathan confronting David. And Nathan says, Why have you despised the Lord? And the scribe said, Well, that, that's a little harsh with, with David, right? So he, he throws in, Why have you despised the, the word of the Lord? softens the blow. Um, what else? Uh, there were some additions in glosses. Sometimes the, the scribes would actually, almost like we put parentheses in a document and explain something, they would do that as they were copying the text because they thought they were helping people understand. Again, guys, these are things that, that are, are like glowing neon signs in these manuscripts because we have so many of them. We can point them out. We can identify them. We can see them. We can say this was not in the original text because clearly it doesn't measure up with the rest of the evidence that we have. And we can move forward and we can make those decisions. Again, all that depends on us having a strong number of manuscripts to compare and contrast. And the question is, do we have that? Yes, absolutely. More manuscript evidence exists for the Bible than for any other book. Any other book. And so because we have those, we can compare them and contrast them. And so I can stand up here tonight and tell you, is the Bible reliable? Which was the question we started out with. I can say to you, yes, it is 100% absolutely reliable that what is in this book is what the original authors wanted in this book. Am I going to say 100% exactly word for word, period for period, comma for comma? No, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say it's 99.9% .9 yes, word for word, comma for comma, period for period, what the original authors wanted you to have in the text. But I want to come back to that message that I began with, which is that old line from the song that we all sang as kids, or maybe most of us did. What is that song again? Jesus, what? Loves me. This I know. Why? For the Bible tells me so. That's something that comes with a conviction, okay? So everything that I've said tonight, guys, has basically been for you if you are a follower of Christ. If, if you're not, I don't... I don't pretend that any of this is going to make a difference to you. I don't, honestly. Because if you're not a follower of Christ, I could bring you face to face with every manuscript. I could hold in my hand the original copy of every book of the Bible for you. And if God doesn't open your eyes to the reality of your need for Christ as a Savior, if God does not open your eyes to the reality that Jesus loves you for the Bible tells you so, you are hopeless. And so if you're out there and, and you just could care less about this, it's no sweat off my back. Again, this was for people that are here that say, I believe in Christ, I believe in Jesus, I believe the Bible. I, I wanted this to be a message that would encourage you, that would give you just a, a, a boost to say that, man, the Bible that I am convicted is, is God's word is reliable. 
If you're not there, guys, I, I just want to tell you that the Bible itself tells you that none of anything that I talked about tonight is going to do you any good. The Bible says that itself. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled or hidden to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The only way that you can go from belief or from unbelief, excuse me, to belief is an act of God. It's an act of God from beginning to end. And so if, if that makes you uncomfortable, praise God. And I pray that you are miserable and wrecked until you get right with God. I pray that you do not sleep an ounce until you get right with God. I pray that you find joy in nothing until you get right with God. And that that happens sooner than later. But for those of you who are here who say, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus, I believe in the Bible. Guys, I want you to stand confidently and know that, yes, Jesus loves you, for the Bible tells you so. And the Bible that you have in your hands is reliable. You can put your weight, your confidence, your authority behind it. You can put it up against any other book and it will be shown more accurate, more reliable time and time and time again. It's been over 2,000 years almost that people have been trying to show that it's not reliable. And if anyone had, it would lead every single news story, not just once, but for the rest of your life. And nobody has and nobody will. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this reality that our, our Bibles are truly reliable, that we can put our full weight behind the word of God, that we can say that this is the word of God and this is what you want us to know. This is what the authors intended us to, to know and to learn and to study and to embrace and to believe. God, thank you. Thank you for the manuscripts that we have and the evidence that we have that backs this up, God. I pray that if, if nothing else, it would just deepen our conviction and deepen our faith. Lord, our faith ultimately is not in paper, it's in the God behind it. And so we pray that, uh, Lord, you would just give us opportunities to continue to, to learn more about you through your word, that we would be more effective witnesses for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.